Hello, everybody who is listening. Thank you for listening to the second episode in our Being First podcast series. We are very excited to have Dr. Matthew Sullivan here with us today. Carlos and I were fortunate enough to have Matthew as a teacher slash mentor last year in the Soul program. It was there where we first had the chance to really dive deep and explore our own first-gen identities. Matthew is really an expert. He has studied first-gen college students at length, and the first-gen community has added salience in Matthew's life as he is a first-generation college student himself. We are excited to have him here to share his expertise with us and all of you. Hello, Matthew. Thank you for being here. Um, We'd like to ask you many questions, but I think it's best for you uh, to introduce yourself in your own words. Tell us who you are, what you do, and share your first-gen story with us. Basically, what led you to here? So, I'm a first-gen, and uh, I am one of the many a common story of first gen where I knew I wanted to go to college, but I didn't know how to do it. And um, I so much did not know how to do it that I actually did not do it at first. Um, I went to a year of community college and I just realized I had no idea what I was doing. And so, um, and I saw a lot of people around me who were in community college for like seven, eight years, didn't know what they were doing, had no real sort of exit plan. And I just knew I didn't want to be one of those people. So, um, so I actually dropped out and I went traveling. Um, and I did all kinds of jobs. I spent some time homeless. And, uh, you know, that's a whole another story that take a whole hour. But when I was 25, I went, uh, I got a job commercially fishing salmon in Alaska. And I worked for three months, not three and a half months, uh, like, you know, 10 to 12 hour days worked really hard and at the end of that summer I took home $2,800 and I was like man I just need to make more money this is I'm too smart for this so at the age of 25 I finally went back to college and I went to Sacramento City College and uh, my express goal was to get out as quickly as possible um, again like I'd seen these people who were just in community college for years and years and I just did not want to be that uh, so I majored in anthropology in, in part because it had few requirements, but in part because I had a professor who uh, just really inspired me. It was Professor Bill Doonan at Sacramento City College. He made me feel like I really, you know, had something to offer intellectually. Um, and so I transferred to UC Berkeley, <coughs> where, um, where I continued anthropology. I uh, had a focus in Near Eastern Studies and Middle Eastern Archaeology as well. Um, and I graduated in 2005 with highest honors. Um, it was great. And repeated another thing that first gens commonly do, which is I had no plan for what happened afterwards. So I thought, you know, I just graduated from, you know, one of the best public schools in the country and in the world, just like University of Michigan, you know, the other best public university in the world. And, uh, you know, I graduated highest honors. I thought, you know, there's gonna, I'm just going to get a job. It's going to be super easy. But I didn't plan for it. I was just trying to get through college. I was trying to survive, really. Um, so then I went to work for Starbucks <laughs> with my fancy degree. And, um, and I actually had a really good time at Starbucks. I worked with some great people, but that obviously wasn't going to be a good career tra- trajectory. Um, so I managed to get a job at a law office, and I did that for a couple years, and it, it worked out pretty well. Um, but I just got kind of bored, and so I, I decided that I wanted to either go back to law school or go to law school or go to graduate school. 
And I got into both and, you know, I was faced with a sort of decision. But working in law actually made me not want to be a lawyer. I think if you want to be a lawyer, you should go work in a law office because it's, um, it may not be, you know, what you think it is. Um, so then I, you know, came here. I started a PhD program at the University of Michigan in sociology. Um, and I came here to because I want to teach, actually. So I, you know, I talked about Bill Doonan. I wanted to be Bill Doonan. He just, he, you know, seemed like he was doing something important. He inspired me. So I kind of want to be that for other people. So I came here knowing I wanted to teach. Um, and I share this story a lot. My very first day of my first class of graduate school, the professor said to everyone, you are at the University of Michigan to become a top, a world-class researcher. If that is not why you're here, you are in the wrong place. And I just thought, oh crap, I'm in the wrong place. Uh, but you know, I was like, I'm here now. I'm you know, again at one of the best universities in the world. I'm not, I'm not leaving. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try to get what I want out of this. I'm going to try to you know meet my goals. Uh, so I focused a lot on teaching. I taught as much as possible. I uh, and I still love teaching. And so um, at some point, I want to say 2000. 13, uh, Dr. Sandra Levitsky um, approached my, me and another colleague of mine to say, we want to start this first-gen program. Can you, you know, help us do the lit review of, you know, what's out there so we can figure out, you know, what the common problems are, what the interventions are that are happening? And I was like, great. So we wrote this grant. It got funded for a year. And then she sent out a call to um, have people be peer mentors to first-gens. And I, of course, volunteered. I was like, I'd love to peer mentor, you know, first-gens. And she was like, no, actually, I'd like you to lead the program. And I was like, well, gosh, that's surprising. <laughs> um, but it was, it was great. It was very validating. And I think it's because of my teaching reputation that, uh, that she asked me to do that. And so that's, um, well, so I did it for two years as a graduate student. And then this summer, I finally finished my PhD. Yay. So after I finished my PhD, this became a real job, at least for this year. We're hoping to extend it, but right now we just have this year. Um, and so that's how I became the director of the SOUL program, which is the Sociology Opportunities for Undergraduate Leadership um, aimed at first gen. So that's, that's the quick version from I have no idea what I'm doing, college to program director for SOUL. Carlos and I are both graduating this year, and we are curious to know what your thoughts are on the relationship between first gens and sort of life after college. How do first gens uh, grapple with their identity and expectations of careers once well, we leave places like Michigan? Basically, uh, can you talk about first gens and work? So again, it's a very common story that first gens don't, um, don't know what they're going to do and their first goal is just just like me is just surviving college just making it through college because you know first gens when they come to college uh, they don't know what it's like to be a college student they talk a lot, literature talks about the college student identity and that's something that you know everybody's learning to some degree it's not particular to first gens but if you've had parents that went to college and family went to college and family friends who went to college and you heard stories about college growing up you know, you come by that identity pretty quickly. And if you don't have any of that, you are figuring it out from scratch. So I think commonly what that translates to is, is uh, first students don't have a solid idea of what they want to do. What I realized, I actually realized this, this summer, is what students are really asking for is, I want to see X career that I can do and then be given a path to that career. Um, and I think that's especially true for first gens. They don't have a solid idea of of what their career trajectory is going to be. And then 
we know from literature and I know from my own experience uh, leading this whole program that um, their jobs in college exacerbate this problem. So first gens disproportionately get jobs, and I'm not going to diss any of these jobs, you know, whatever you need to do is pay your bills is great, but like, you know, they get jobs at the dining hall, they, you know, wait at, uh, become wait staff at a restaurant or something like that. Whereas continuing gen students, if they, especially if they don't have any money problems, they're doing research for professors, they're, you know, doing unpaid internships, they're doing jobs that get them connections uh, for their future career trajectory. So that's another thing that sort of exacerbates this problem. But I think, I think the two, I think that th that's the two biggest things, is sort of having a vision of what they want to do and then, um, and then being able to make the connections here uh, to do it. You talk about making connections here to be successful post-graduation. Talk to us more about the process of making those connections. What do first gens need to know about the game of networking? It is really important and everybody struggles with it, but how do first gens who don't have people in their family who understand the processes at work at the university, what do they need to know about making connections? Also, we know that there are some massive cultural differences between students, and I think uh, there are possibly some differences in what the normal is for first gens and continuing gens when it comes to family life and and the culture that bleeds through in these interactions um, so it could be something as simple as a professor asking you what your parents do for a living and having to explain that oh your mom works a pink collar job or dad is in prison michigan is a classed environment so it's nearly assumed that many students will have two parents who do regular middle upper class jobs uh, and and that just isn't the case really for me in the first that I know. Can you talk more about that? Um, because I think these cultural differences do bleed through in these interactions. As a first gen, especially at a place like University of Michigan, you are becoming upwardly mobile, right? So you are you are going to be in a different social class than you started. That's you know in some ways the point, all right, of, of coming to college. So what that means is for networking, is you have to put yourself in situations where you are socializing with people whom you don't share a lot of culture with. You, you know, you, and not only do you not share culture, but you are sort of in a subordinated position, you know, with respect to their culture. So it's like you have knowledge and, and background and expertise and things that aren't as socially valued, at least from, you know, where they come from and sort of where you're going as an upperly mobile student. Um, so it's especially challenging to network. You know, students who do this, they often encounter situations where uh, the person they're talking to says, like, oh, well, where did you, you know, vacation in the summer? You know, like, my family has a house in the Hamptons. Where did you go? You know, and they just sort of assume that's like, especially a place like Michigan, again, where we, there's a lot of wealth here. Um, there are these assumptions that you do that kind of stuff. And it can be sort of, um, it can feel like a symbolic violence or something to, to, to not have that experience. But my, my advice is you, you should go do it. You should talk to people who, with whom you're not comfortable um, and who have something to offer you, but also treat it as something natural. Um, everyone, my, my secret to networking is to ask people about themselves. Everyone loves to talk about themselves. Everyone wants to tell you their story. And if you can be sincerely interested in people, I guess that's also my secret is I actually am interested in people. I, I like to hear people's stories. I think they're fascinating. Um, if you can, you know, m mobilize that or at least mimic it, you'll, you'll do a lot better. And don't look at it as 
something instrumental, like I need something from this person. Also look at it as you have something to offer because that's something that first gens, uh, they bring a unique set of skills to a college like the University of Michigan that is not already represented here. They bring a unique perspective. They're, uh, they're innovative, they're ingenious. And so, you know, don't think that you're talking to people to try to get something. You're also trying to offer something. And that's really what networking is. It's kind of an exchange. What do you think has um, served you most in your journey of going uh, from a first-gen who knows very little about higher education to a director whose job it is now to actually help first-gens? So basically from not knowing to being an expert on first-gen identities. Oh, man. So it's kind of funny because like I'm in my first like career, right? Uh, I've had a lot of jobs and everybody who knows me, they'll, at some point they're just like, man, how many jobs have you had? Um, but this is like my first career, right? Um, I think what has served me most is a willingness to throw myself into a situation that I don't fully understand. So even when I went to college, when I went back to college at 25, I had no idea how I was going to pay for it. I had no idea how I was going to see it through. But I was just like, I'm going to work it out, you know. <laughs> I'm going to figure this out one way or another. And I did. Um, you know, when I had that moment here where the professor's like basically telling me, like, you don't belong here with your goals, I was like, well, I'm going to work it out. And it looks like I did. You know, I was able to set something up and or not even set something up. I was, I was you know, my reputation and my hard work sort of gave it to me in a way. Um, so I would, I think that's my, be my biggest piece of advice is, you know, even if you don't know how it's going to work, you don't know what you're going to do, just get started. Just take that first step, figure it out as you go along, look for help, find the people who have gone before you and ask what they did, um, you know, and really, really don't be afraid to ask for help. That's another huge difference between first gens and continuing gen students, uh, you know, continuing generation students. They see infrastructures, they see institutions as there to serve them. And so in their mind, it's not even really asking for help. It's just what you do. You know, you go get those resources. And first gens commonly think, I need to do this all on my own, you know, and they don't ask for help in a timely manner or they don't seek advice. So do throw yourself out there, but also, you know, find the resources that are there to help you because everyone around you except for your, you know, maybe that awful friend who's really not really your friend. Everyone around you wants you to succeed, right? No, no one wants you to not succeed. You mentioned um, that first-gens struggle with taking the resources and using them to their advantage. What do you think is um, sort of the first step um, for first-gens? What can they do to be proactive about their education at Michigan? How do they engage institutionally in order to get the most out of Michigan? So first gens, if you're a freshman and you're not a transfer student, you probably don't have a solid idea of what you're going to major in. Um, but you probably have some idea of a set of interests. Like you don't come here, you know, to be a chemical engineer. You know, you don't suddenly decide you want to be a chemical engineer if you want to be an anthropologist or something, right? Like there's, there's, you know, a somewhat narrow set. Um, so I think first institutionally, you could probably talk to some uh, departmental advisors, see what the different majors look like. Um, the Career Center can help you start planning. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but it's, it's really never too early to start planning that kind of stuff. Um, as far as networking goes, I mean, there's just tons of student groups. If you could go on May's pages, I think it's called. I mean, whatever you're interested in, there is a ton of student groups. Um, and there's a ton of opportunities to get to know people, 
for the kinds of things you're interested in. That, actually, that's another thing about networking is like you don't have to like go find the rich banker's kid or whatever to like you know network and you know get yourself in the Merrill Lynch or whatever. You network with people who are in your interest. Everyone here, for the vast you know for the most part, vast majority of you guys are going to go on to do successful, cool things, right? So finding people with whom you have a natural affinity. Um, that's going to serve you for a lifetime. So I don't think, you know, I think you have to take like a crazy leap, you know, the second you get here, um, or, or some dangerous step. I think that's all pretty natural stuff. But, but being involved, and actually, I've known a few, um, uh, a few students who I've mentored, who actually for that is kind of a problem. They keep their friends back home. They don't want to have any friends here. They don't want to branch out because it's scary. Um, and I, you know, there's just no, there's just no reason to be scared. Everyone here, they're people, you know, there's, I mean, you know, you're going to find some jerks here. That's just people everywhere. Right. But there's a lot of great people here and whatever you're interested in, you know, if you're a nerd, if you're, you know, into comics, you'll find that. If you're into, I don't know, deep sea diving, like you'll find that. Right. I mean, there's something here for everybody. So it doesn't need to be, um, something scary, but, but you, definitely should jump out there and get involved as early as you can and make connections with people as early as you can. We've talked about connecting with other people on campus, but professors are also an important component in any network, right? The literature seems to suggest that this is where first gens tend to struggle. So one study I read interviewed first gens uh, and found that most of them believe that going into office hours was a sign of weakness. They have this sort of go it alone attitude, or they believe that uh, if they were doing well in the course that the professors would notice them based on the merit of their work. Uh, and so office hours were unnecessary, right? But this isn't really the case. Um, if you aren't proactive about going to office hours, you might miss out on making uh, important connections with really interesting people who have a lot to offer to your education at Michigan. Um, can you just talk more about this? So this is also very important because when you go to request a letter of rec, um, the quality is going to depend very much on how well they know you. I've written letters of rec for students who I barely know, and I, I tell them that, and they'll say, you know, well, I, I literally have no one. I'm like, okay, well, I'll write you a pretty mediocre letter because that's the best I can do. Um, and then I've had students who, you know, I have coffee with and we're close, and I can write an effusive letter of recommendation. So, um, so that's just like one instrumental reason to get to, to know a professor. So the way you go about this is you go to their office hours, and it's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a secret. There's no, like, you know, and that's not going to surprise anybody that you go to their office hours. I mean, as an instructor, you notice the kids in class who make a contribution. So if you do that, that's fantastic also. But yes, that is probably not enough. When you go to write a letter of rec, and again, it's not all about letters of recommendation, but when you go to write a letter of rec, if all you can say is like, they were great in class discussions, that doesn't take you very far. Because I don't, you know, as an instructor, I don't know what you want out of life. I don't know why you're doing what you do. I don't know these personal kinds of things, right? Um, and first gens also very commonly think that if they're going to office hours, they have to like not understand something or they have to, um, or it means they're lost or it means they're stupid because they don't you know, know what's going on and everybody else knows what's going on. And that is so not the case. I mean, continuing gen students, they go in with their papers and they're like, you know, I, I want an A and I personally have no problem with this. If you're, if you're coming into 
office hours before the papers do and you've like written the paper and you want me to look it over because you want an A and that's instrumental but that's fine you're you're doing it how it's supposed to be done right um, so yeah they'll come in with their papers they'll come in just to shoot the breeze I mean one of my favorite things is when a student comes in they're like we did these readings this week and it was making me think about this other thing you know and we want to talk about it when I was an undergrad uh, I took this class um, culture uh, art and power with Alexi Yurchek uh, at Berkeley and um, we, I saw this article about these buildings in Russia, and one was built to look like a stiletto heel, and one was built to look like whatever. And I sent it to him because, like, this is this is kind of the stuff we're talking about. It's pretty weird. I thought of you, and he's like, "Come in, let's talk about it." You know, um, you know, professors are people. They they have their own interests. And again, remember what I said about like asking people about themselves. Professors are people too. You know, if you go in and you're like, you know, what's your research? I want to hear more about what you do. Oh my God, they'll talk your face off. You know, so. So, and you know, usually it's interesting, or not usually it's interesting, but if you, if you like your professor, it's probably interesting. What they're working on is probably interesting. Um, but yeah, go to office hours early. You know, if, if you really need to make up a question, make up a question. You know, if you're really just anxious about going in and being like, what do you do? Or, you know, trying to just like, you know, chat like a normal person, then just make up a question and see what's going on. But yeah, take in your papers. Do anything to make a contact with them. Cause when you, again, as a professor, if I know where you came from, why you're doing what you're doing, you know, why you want to go to med school, um, that kind of thing, I can write you such a better letter. And not even just writing a letter, they'll see opportunities out there and think of you. They'll say, oh, hey, I saw this, this grant that's being done. I saw this fellowship that's being done. I saw this opportunity and I thought of you. And that's the kind of thing that, that, your, whole, that your network is for. Is it people doing that work for you, you know, when you're just watching Netflix and somebody's got your back, right? And that's, that's how networks are supposed to work. And again, you give back to that too. You'll see opportunities. Now, it won't work for professors immediately, but eventually down the line, you might see things that help your professor too. It's very possible. You're going to become, you know, professional one day. Shifting gears a bit, um, we briefly touched on cultural capital. Can you explain more about what that is and where it comes uh, into play uh, with first-gen students? How we change and how the changes uh, we experience affect our family, our dynamics with our family, because we are all, after all, upwardly mobile. And so uh, we may not like it, but as our surroundings change, so too does our culture. Uh, and that can generate a lot of anxiety in first gens who then feel the need to code switch when they're here or when they're home, uh, which basically exacerbates their feeling of being and existing and living in sort of a liminal space. So basically, uh, what is cultural capital? Can you explain that? It's a socially valued knowledge and skills, um, or at least that's how I sort of boil down Pierre Bourdieu. Um, and this comes out, you know, when you're first gen, this comes out when you see people who just know how to act, they know how to talk, they know how to present themselves in the right way, they know to go to professors, they have a sort of healthy sense of entitlement. And that's actually something I try to stress is we've made kind of entitlement and a bad word, you know, if you're entitled, but there is a healthy sense of entitlement. There is a healthy sense of these people owe me something, you know, like you, you owe me as a professor, your time and office hours. They literally do. That is their job. They owe you that. Um, so that's like part of the cultural capital that continuing generation students have. Um, whereas first generation students, there's, there's no one way to be first gen. So we actually come with a range of different types of cultural capital that kind of depends on where you came from and the family you were raised in and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's a different set of cultural capital. 
um, and it's not always socially valued. So, like for me, I know how to work on a car. You know, that's just every every male in my family worked on cars. It was like a pastime. You know, you take apart a car, put it back together. I I have uh, I can I can talk the lingo of you know working on cars. I can do all that kind of stuff, and that has zero value here, right? Um, and so first gens oftentimes get sort of hung up on the fact that they don't have the cultural capital. Uh, one of the questions we ask in our interview project is, have you ever been, I'm going to summarize, I'm not going to get this perfect because since you guys did these interviews, but it's something like, you know, have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you were wearing the wrong clothes or you were speaking the wrong way or you didn't know how to act? That's cultural capital. Um, that's you sort of feeling like maybe you don't have the right cultural capital and you don't belong. Um, and then one of the weird things about being, again, a first-gen at a place like University of Michigan is that you are being upwardly mobile, and so you are acquiring this new cultural capital. Um, and it can feel kind of weird, because in a way, you're leaving your family behind. You're learning to act and talk in a way that is unfamiliar to the people you care about and the people you grew up with. And a common experience is first-gens will go back home and they'll talk to you know their family, and their family's like, I don't understand the words coming out of your mouth. You know, like, why... Why are you talking to me this way? You think you're so smart now. Um, and that's, that's hard um, because both things are valuable, right? I mean, where you came from, I'm sure, you know, well, where we came from, there's probably some unvaluable parts too. But there's, you know, there's a lot of value to, to uh, where you came from, the things you learned and the way you acted. And there's also value things here. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's what cultural capital is, uh, and, and learning it can be difficult. But, and actually, okay, here's my little sociological rant about cultural capital. I hate how it's applied in the literature on first gens because it's usually uh, measured. It's hard to measure. It's hard to figure out what, you know, valuable cultural capital is or looks like or is defined. And so my two sort of rants about this are it's usually measured in terms of things like how many books you have in the home, do you go to operas, you know, this kind of thing, um, which I just think, you know, on its face is a bad measure. You could have, you know, a lot. I'm, I'm just thinking of Great Gatsby when, like, he has this whole giant library and then I can't remember who the main character was, but he looks at the books and all the pages are uncut, which means he hasn't read any of them. You know, so, like, you could have a ton of books in your house, but, you know, that doesn't mean anything. But also it tends to favor... Uh, a hierarchy of cultural capital. It treats the cultural capital you acquire here as if it is somehow objectively more valuable than the cultural capital you came with from home. Um, and I think cultural capital in reality is very context specific. So if your car, if you're, you know, you're a banker, you know, a financial analyst, whatever, like some, you know, rich person with a lot of cultural capital, you go to operas and whatever. If your car broke down where I grew up, that would not help you at all. Um, you know, assuming you didn't have like pocket full of hundreds, which of course that would help out quite a lot. But like no one would be impressed with that, right? But if you know how to work on a car and you know like football and baseball and you know all that kind of stuff, well then it's going to get you real far and you're going to be able to chat it up with somebody on the road, they're going to give you a ride, you know, whatever. So, um, so that, that's my rant about cultural capitals. We tend to view the cultural capital you gain here as if it's objectively more valuable um, when I guess, yeah. I'm like, in some ways it is because it translates into money more easily. But I think in a sort of larger moral ethical sense, it, it isn't. So you've done uh, a great deal of work surrounding first gens, and there are a lot of wonderful people on campus looking to do similar things as you are to help first gens, right? But why would you say that the work you are doing is important for first gens? Oh, man, that is great. Um, 
that is great because I've actually just been sort of feeling very happy about where I am in life right now. Um, the work I do is important, I think, because I get to make a direct impact on people's lives. Um, and this is actually to give a little pitch for the Soul Program other, over other, or not over, but sort of adjacent to uh, other programming that's going on at the university. Um, a lot of the programs, and they're good programs, rely on students to come to an office, you know, to receive help. So they have, uh, you know, somebody sitting in an office ready to talk to you. They have workshops. They have these things, and those are all great. But the thing is the first gens commonly don't seek this help. They don't seek help until their lives are on fire and, <laughs> you know, they're at risk of leaving. Or they leave. Um, and so I think what I do is valuable because we really deeply involve ourselves in students' lives. And it's kind of like, you know, to the extent to which they want. You know, I don't like go knocking on the door on weekends, you know, and find out what they're up to. But we try to keep, um, we, we try to be very aware of what's going on in students' lives. And I know of a couple students who either would probably not be here at this point if, if the SOUL program hadn't been there to catch them when their lives were on fire. Um, or they just wouldn't be succeeding as, as much as they are right now. Um, we do uh, weekly journal entries. And one time there was a student who in their journal entry just sort of mentioned uh, that they were really, you know, at a sort of low point in their, you know, undergraduate education and they were really entertaining the idea of leaving. And for me, that's, you know, alarm bells going off. And so um, I was able to meet with that person. Uh, we, we, we started meeting every week um, and, you know, they're still here. So. Um, that for that for me is extremely validating when I think you know if only one literally if one person finished college and got a you know got a career that they enjoyed because I did something that's you know my whole life is now you know justified um, so that's that's why I love what I do and it's just so necessary I think um, I think the first-gen identity is becoming something that universities are increasingly aware of now, and I think there's a lot of political and cultural reasons for that, and actually not all of them are good. But, um, but I, for whatever reason, I think it, it is sort of becoming, you know, more of an issue now. Um, and so I think it's, there's more opportunity, you know, to make these sort of interventions um, <clears throat> and to, to do some good in the world. Um, and this is even better for me, this is even, you know, I love teaching, like I said, and I, I love talking about, you know, cultural capital and you know, economics and whatever, but, um, and those ideas are important, but being able to directly impact someone's life is, of course, I think, in some ways, much more important. For any of our administrators who are listening to this, um, can you basically explain the soul model, perhaps uh, why you are an advocate of it uh, and where it is different from other programs that are targeted uh, at first-gen students? Yeah, so <clears throat> so the soul model, and again, this is, um, this is Dr. Sandra Levitsky. She's, I, I got to implement it, and so I sort of designed all the material, but this is completely her... Um, you know, that got this started. It exists because of her. Um, but uh, it's got sort of three parts. So it's a, um, it's a class, and in the class we discuss uh, for the first, it's a year-long program, so in the first semester we discuss uh, the first-gen identity, and we discuss theories of social class, but really from an individual level. Um, we also uh, 
we also do a series of workshops in the class, and we have um, visitors, first-gen visitors, who come share their first-gen story, um, because there's many ways to be a first-gen, and that's, uh, in some ways, the richness of the, the diversity that the first-gen perspective offers. It's also sort of challenging to define first-gen, but anyway, so we try to give a lot of pictures of that. And in the second semester of the class, we, we talk about social class more broadly, and we continue the workshops, and we continue you know, the first-gen visitors. Um, the second part is a research assistantship. Um, so they, um, soul students in the past, they just worked for me on this on a first-gen project. Now we've gotten a little bit bigger, so they work with other faculty as well. And the idea behind it, it's a paid internship and the or research assistantship. And the idea behind this is first to hopefully give them a form of employment that gives these skills that might translate into a career rather than you know working at the dining hall or whatever. Um, again, no problems with working at dining hall. Um, and then secondly, um, to develop connections with faculty that will, you know, hopefully turn into something more. Um, and then uh, the third piece is they uh, take the leadership labs of the Barger Leadership Institute, which you guys are a shining example of the success of that because we're talking right now because you guys did the capstone project. Um, so that's the three parts. Um, and again, I think one of the ways we try to be different than some of the other things going on on campus is, uh, well, when Sandy started the program, she said she wanted to be like an institutional hug, um, which I love that phrasing. Um, and it's not just a hug in the sense that we support people and care about people, although of course we try to do both those things. Um, but it's a hug in that we try to encompass them holistically. So, you know, we try to really know what's going on in people's lives, um, or I do. Um, I try to know how they're doing in their classes. I try to know the kinds of troubles they're facing week to week. Um, every week we do a, a check-in. We start with a check-in where we just say, like, how our week's been and things that are going on. And that's really important because you can find out, you know, first-gens have a lot of issues at home that continuing agent students often don't have, you know, like drug-addicted parents and, you know, siblings in jail, parents in jail, yeah, and that, and that affects you, know, you here. And it's not the kind of thing that would come up in any other context. In no other class you're going to be like, oh, well, my dad's in jail and I'm really struggling right now. Like that's, you know, so we want that to come up in the SOUL program. That's part of that institutional hug, is to be sort of holistically, you know, treating the student. Um, and again, if you have an office uh, where students can drop in or you have workshops, that's good too, but it's not meeting that same need. It's not going to find out, you know, that the students are dealing with, you know, a parent in jail or that their life is on fire in some way and they're thinking about dropping out. Because again, first gens don't seek help. They won't go. So you need to, <clears throat> you need to do that sort of outreach. You need to be involved in them and their lives in a sort of regular capacity. Um, you asked how it's going to expand. So, you know, we're in a, a moment right now where we're trying to propose an expansion to the university. Um, and what that's looking like right now, or how we're proposing it, is to have a large cross-listed class that does a lot of the things that we're doing in our soul class right now. Um, so it obviously couldn't do, you know, a check-in with, you know, 100 people or something. But, um, but do a lot of the workshop stuff, a lot of the... Um, uh, first-gen identity stuff. Um, I had another student this year uh, told me, just came up to me after class, and she's like, you know, I went to the first-gen group, I did these other things, and they were all about professionalization, and she's like, that's fine and everything, but she's like, it really wasn't what I was looking for. And she's like, this sort of, you know, reflexively trying to understand in a deep way the first-gen experience 
that was valuable. Like that's helping me understand what it means to be a Wolverine, you know, as a first gen. Um, so, so a larger class would do that sort of stuff. And then each department um, that we can get involved would have a discussion, sort of like a discussion section, where then you do the stuff like the check-ins um, and, uh, you know, sort of a, a, more, a more thorough discussion of your, of your first gen experience. Um, the trick will be training GSIs to do that institutional hug, right? To like to be holistically involved in students' lives in a way that they feel safe and comfortable and they want to share. And it's totally possible. It's just, uh, it'll require some training and some being thoughtful about what that's going to look like. So it's been a pleasure to have you here, Matthew. Um, but we were kind of curious what your final thoughts are for our listeners, uh, especially the first gens out there who are listening to this podcast. If you're a first gen at the University of Michigan, you have already proven that you have an incredible set of skills, perseverance, ingenuity. Um, you deserve to be here. And not only that, you add something valuable here that would not be here without you. Uh, I th somebody in this year's cohort was like, you know, I hate everybody saying, like, you belong, you belong, you belong. Because, like, at some point, it's like you say it so much, it's like it's making me think you don't think it, you know, like if you have to say it so much. So instead of saying you belong, I want to say you bring something valuable that would be a giant vacuum if you weren't here. You bring a perspective that the, the you know, otherwise pretty wealthy student body would not have. You bring an ingenuity that is unique to you. Um, and if you stick it out through all the tough times, and I had tough times, I'm sure you guys have had tough times. If you stick it out, you will be happy. You will be happy you did so, and you will go on to do great things. Thank you all for listening to our second podcast. We hope you learned something. Be on the lookout for our next podcast. Uh, we will be talking with a very dear friend of ours about her experience as a first-gen at Michigan and visiting some of the intersections of race, class, and the first-gen identity. If you would like to share your first gen story, please contact the Being First team at ltbitner at umich.edu. Thank you all.